going to go ahead and invite you to uh, open your Bibles to John 8. I don't normally title my sermons, but if I were to title John 8, the Gospel of John, John 8, uh, I would title it uh, A Tale of Two Sinners. A Tale of Two Sinners. There is the rank sinner uh, that you all learned about last week, the woman caught in adultery. And then the religious sinner that we're going to talk about today. There is the overt sinner who just sins. They just said, I'm not going to church today. I got other stuff to do. And then there's the covert sinner. And you might be among us. It's the ways in which we are sinners as well. The woman caught caught in adultery, the first part of John 8, and then the sinners of the Pharisees, the next part of what we're picking up on today. And to continue to go on this Charles Dickens theme, if you will, she was the worst of sinners, and they were the best of sinners. We ought to lean in this morning, because last week, for most of us, I, I think you mostly get a pass Because most of us, I think, have a little bit of trouble relating to the woman caught in adultery, that overt sinner that everyone was kind of looking at. But the the rest of us were the Pharisees. And so I want to invite you to lean in a little bit more this morning. And make no mistake about it, John, as he's telling and teaching about the life of Jesus, he makes no distinction between these two sinners. The worst of sinners and the best of sinners, they were all separated from God, and they were all on a trajectory walking away from God. And that's what we're going to look at this morning in John 8. We're going to pick it up with verse 12. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, God, for an opportunity to gather as your people, to read your word, to continue on this journey through the gospel of John, to be challenged to be encouraged, to be strengthened, and to be filled, Lord, so that we might bear your good news out into the world. Lord, may the words of my mouth, the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, for you are indeed our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So to give you a little recap of where we're at, getting up to John 8, at this point in time, Jesus and his disciples have been doing ministry for almost three years. It's about six months before Jesus is arrested, tried, and taken to the cross. And at this point in time in his ministry, he's made a lot of people angry, primarily the religious people. And at this point in time, they are looking for a moment, a place, a time where they can kill him because he is really causing problems. The things that are coming out of his mouth and the whole power structure. And so here we are in John 8, and I know many of you have been reading along in your daily devotionals as we go through John, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. John 8, beginning with verse 12. When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Now we have to ask ourselves, How in the world does this text kind of pick up from last week? 
How does Jesus stand there and deliver this sermon in the temple? I am the light of the world. What's the connection between that and the woman caught in adultery? Because on the surface, they don't really seem like uh, there's much of a connection there. But those of you who are reading along know that this is during the Feast of the Tabernacles. It's this great party. It's this celebration of the Jewish people remembering God rescuing Moses and the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt. And through the wilderness, God led the people by a pillar of fire. And so what's going on here, Still, it's the last day. It's the day after. The party's over. And each day, they lit these giant lamps, 64-gallon lamps filled with oil. And the oil would just, in the temple yard area, it would light things up, not only in that area, but all around Jerusalem. And so this party, the Festival of the Tabernacles, was not just about water. Remember we talked about that a couple weeks ago? It wasn't just this this water party where the, the priest takes his pitcher of water and they pour it out. They celebrate. Jesus says, I'm the, the water of life and whoever's thirsty and all that good stuff. But it's also a party, a celebration, remembering of God's faithfulness through the wilderness. And after the last day of the, the celebration, they take these big uh, uh, candelabras, these big uh, vessels of oil filled with oil and light. They bring them down, they pack them up, and they put them away. For the next year. Kind of reminds me of Christmas. The day after Christmas, right? You take the lights off the tree, put the tree out at the curb or whatever you do, put it back in the box, throw all the wrapping paper away or whatever you do with that. It's it's kind of that day after Christmas, just like, wow, that was a party. It was wonderful seeing the relatives. It was great to have the kids, the grandkids here, but I'm glad they're gone, right? It's a lot of noise, a lot of activity, a little bit of peace and quiet. And that's what's going on here in the story. It's the day after the party, the day after the remembrance. And so Jesus is in the living room. He's in the temple. He looks at the family and says, I am the light of the world. And they've just celebrated this incredible party. And everybody's thinking about light. And they're like, oh my goodness. And they're immediately thinking of Genesis 1. Remember Genesis 1, the world, everything was dark and void and formless and no light. In Genesis 1, 3, God says, let there be light. God spoke light into the world. And every Jewish person in the temple, when Jesus says, I am the light of the world, their minds immediately go to Genesis 1-3. Who does this guy think he is? God is the one who speaks light, speaks things into creation. And here's Jesus claiming to be the light of the world. See, we read past this, I think. Oftentimes we're like, oh, it's it's kind of being metaphorical, right? Jesus is like, no, I am the light of the world. In the darkness, you stumble around. In the darkness, you can't see. I mean, the light does so much for us, right? This past week, I was uh, in uh, the woods in the Appalachian Trail in Virginia. 
And it's so fun to be out in the wilderness, if you've been out in the wilderness before, especially at night, and there's, there's no, uh, no stars, no moon, because there's cloud cover. It is so dark. And you, you go and you try and walk around, and you, you can hardly see. Without any light, light provides, it, it illuminates our path. It helps us to step forward. It helps us to move. And I, I think we're, we live in this world of light day in and day out. And when the sun goes down at night here, we just flick on the light switch, right? But in their world, there was such a contrast between darkness and light. And so when Jesus says, I am the light of the world, he's literally saying, I am, was with God in the very beginning. And I spoke light into being, order from chaos. Light also makes things grow. And I know many of us have been excited about planting a garden. And uh, if, if you're like me, if, I don't know if you've ever like gotten really excited about uh, getting some vegetables or some flowers, and, and you bring them home and you um, put them in your garage or forgot them in the trunk a couple days, they don't grow. They die. I mean, you can give them all sorts of water, but without the light, they die. This is what light does, is it makes things grow. Light makes us grow. The light of God, the light of Christ makes us grow. The other thing light does is, is sometimes it just shocks us, right? It's kind of just almost like a, a whack upside the face. You ever gone into a, like a matinee movie in the middle of the daytime? And your eyes get all used to everything that's dark inside, you know. You finally got, you know, used to it. And, and you're coming out at maybe 2 or 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And you're like, I'm just going to go out the side door, right, to the parking lot. You open the door and you're like, ah! The light is just blinding. This is sometimes what the Bible does for us, right? We read the Bible. And it's almost like a smack across the face. And maybe you've come to church. Maybe you've come to worship on a Sunday morning. You're like, man, I felt slapped around today at church. It's not the pastor slapping you around. It's God's word slapping you around. And we all need a good slap around, don't we? Sometimes we need that jolt of light in our lives to convict us, to speak to us. And so Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light, uh, the light of life. The Pharisees challenged him. Here you are appearing as your own witness. Your testimony is not valid. Jesus answered, even if I testify on my own behalf, my testimony is valid. For I know where I come from, heaven, and where I'm going, heaven. But you have no idea where I come from or where I am going. You judge by human standards. I pass judgment on no one. And so they, he says, hey, this is who I am. And, of course, they're upset. I mean, what if a guest preacher were to walk in here on a Sunday morning and start bearing testimony to themselves? Hey, I'm God. I'm a follower of Jesus, and you're not. And it's about that offensive that's going on here, is Jesus is calling them out. And they say, your, your testimony isn't valid. Because according to Jewish law, you had to have a minimum of two, if not three, witnesses. So there's Jesus in the temple. He's like, hey, I am the light of the world. And they're like, no, you're not. You're just saying that on your own. 
Where's your witness? Who else is going to back up your claim? And I can about imagine in Jesus' mind, he's thinking, well, throughout the Old Testament, there's about 330-ish prophecies that point to my life. Old Testament prophets, Old Testament psalmists that talked about where I was going to be born, the life I was going to live, how I was going to die, all these details in my life. The Old Testament is filled with witness and testimony pointing to Jesus. Or we can just get rid of the Old Testament altogether. And I think about Jesus' baptism. There he was, comes up out of the water. The sky's open, right? A dove descends. A voice speaks. This is my son whom I am well pleased. Sounds like a testimony, a witness to me. I don't know. I, was, I don't remember my baptism, but I'm pretty sure there was not an audible voice from heaven. This is my son with whom I'm well pleased. Now, I am a child of God, but God didn't manifest his voice at my own baptism, but he did at Jesus. So it's a bit of an absurd claim by the Pharisees to say, hey, your testimony is not valid. Verse 16, Jesus continues, But if I do judge, my decisions are true, because I am not alone. I stand with the Father who sent me. In your own law it is written, the testimony of two witnesses is true. I am one who testifies for myself. My other witness is the Father who sent me. Then they asked him, Where is your Father? Some of them might even have known his Father. And, of course, they're thinking Joseph, who has, you know, died before Jesus' ministry. So it's it's almost a way of digging at him. Where's your father? You do not know me or my father. Because the guy you're thinking of, that was my stepdad. My father is my heavenly father. Jesus replied, if you knew me, you would know my father also. He spoke these words while teaching in the temple courts near the place where the offerings were put. Yet no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. And I love this last line, because his hour had not yet come. Because for quite a while now, the Jews were, they wanted to kill him. They wanted to seize him. They wanted to kill him. And what this tells us is that they're not in control. Sometimes we think that Jesus was, you know, hanging out with his friends. They went to dinner. They went to a garden. He got arrested and he got caught, right? Somehow they finally caught up with Jesus and they, and they got a hold of him and they caught him. But that's not how it was. What happened was Jesus willingly laid down his life. The Bible makes this very clear. They did not catch Jesus. He willingly walked into Jerusalem and laid down his life. And his hour wasn't up yet. It it wasn't time yet. Which is a great theological statement around God's sovereignty. That in the midst of the chaos of, of Jesus' life, even your life, my life, that God is still in control. He's in control of all things. Whatever hardships, struggles you might be facing, we can never forget that God is in control. He was in control of Jesus' life. His hour had not yet come. Verse 21, once more Jesus said to them, I am going away and you will look for me 
and you will die in your sin. Where I go, you cannot come. This made the Jews ask, will he kill himself? Is this why he says, where I go, you cannot come? But Jesus continued, you are from below, I am from above. There's so much tension in this conversation, this back and forth between Jesus and the religious people. I mean, it's, it's just this verbal sparring, and it's tense, and, and they want to kill him. They just want to get rid of him. But Jesus boldly and courageously just stands there and goes toe-to-toe with these people. And we've got to be realistic about who the Pharisees were. These were good people. These were the most religious people of the day. The Pharisees were the people who showed up at church on Sunday morning. The Pharisees were the people that read the Old Testament, that studied their Bibles. The Pharisees were people that very faithfully and generously tithed a 10% of their income. And they gave on top of that. The Pharisees were the people who showed up at Jerusalem Food Bank and gave and served and helped out. The Pharisees were the people who set up chairs on Sunday morning, the ushers, the greeters. I mean, they were the church people. And they weren't just the church people with an attitude. They were the deeply, the most deeply committed church people out there. This is who the Pharisees were. They were the good people. Nobody thought of the Pharisees as the bad people. And we think about this, this juxtaposition in John 8 with, with the, 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 the overt sinner and the covert sinners. They still have the same problem, don't they? And Jesus says, it's your sin. That's the problem. It's your pride. It's your selfishness. You have a sin problem. And so he goes toe-to-toe. He doesn't let him off the hook and say, you're good. He actually says, where I'm going, you can't go. It's very offensive. He says, you are, not of, this wor- uh, you are of this world. I am not of this world. Seventy-seven times in the New Testament, the writers refer to this idea of the world. And when they write about the idea of the world, they're not talking about this spherical ball that spins around, goes around in space, and we enjoy the world, the stars, the trees, everything we see. That's not what they're talking about when they talk about the world 77 times. What they're talking about in these 77 times are the philosophies, the ideologies, the culture, the ways of the world. Because the ways of the world are in opposition to God. And I think we forget this. I forget this every single day. And Jesus says, I am not of the world, but you are of the world. The Apostle Paul explains it this way uh, in, in 2 Corinthians 4. Who, who is, the, who is the, the Lord of this wor- earth, of this world? This is the participation part. Who's the Lord of this earth? The devil. Right? Paul says it this way. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Satan has actually run around this world wreaking havoc. And I was reminded of that, like I said, even before I barely got out of bed this morning and I already had issues that I was dealing with at our house, our dog. 
any of you have a dog, you wake up in the morning, you got a sick dog, that's the first thing you get to deal with? That was my warning. It's like, really? It just went downhill from there. But it's just such a great reminder that Satan is running all over the place trying to disrupt, trying to distract me, frankly. Because what I try to spend a lot of my time, especially on Sunday morning, is just getting in the right frame of mind and the right heart to come and preach God's word and to be with you all. And all of a sudden, it's like, it's, it's like there's arrows aimed at me on Sunday morning. Just attack. Satan is running everywhere. We are living in enemy territory. And we let's not forget it. There are battles going on all around us. And if we're not paying attention, if we don't have our guard up, if we don't put on the full armor of Christ, Satan can get the best of us. Satan can get the best of me for sure. As I was hiking on the Appalachian Trail with my son this past week, um, it, it's really fun uh, because we spend six, eight, ten hours hiking. And uh, it's, it's kind of one of these moments that we are in the woods, hiking along, and there's so much to see in the woods. Birds, animals, squirrels, chipmunks. We've seen some bear. We see deer. And the scenery is so beautiful. But as you're hiking through the woods, up or down, rarely ever flat, you've always got to keep your uh, looking down because there's roots and rocks. And so it's look, 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 look down. Look, 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 look down. And so your mind is actually very, very active. My mind is very active when I'm walking in the woods. And I was reminded this, uh, this past week, I remembered a time where uh, a couple of years ago, my son and I were hiking a different section of the trail and we came right around a corner and we saw a deer not far away from us. And we just kept watching it to see how long it would take this deer to see us. And so I'm looking at this deer and hiking and not looking down. And then all of a sudden, I feel this uh, hand grab my backpack and pull me back. And I was just about ready to step on a rattlesnake. My son saw it before I did. That's how Satan works, right? Distraction. Distractions of the world. Neat distractions of the world, right? I mean, we have our, our homes. We've got our families. We've got our cars. We've got our hobbies. These are all good things, wonderful things to engage in. But if we're not careful, Satan will get us. And so we've got to be on our guard. Make no mistake. This world, Satan rules it and is running around trying to trip you and me up. Jesus says, you are of this world. I am not of this world. Verse 24 I told you uh, that you would die in your sins. If you do not believe I am, you will indeed die in your sins. Do you notice I left out a word there? I, read, I, I didn't read the word I am he. And the reason I didn't do that is because the word he is not in the original translation, in the Greek translation. It's implied. What the original Greek says, I told you that you would die in your sins. If you do not believe that I am, you will indeed die in your sins. But our translators added the word he because it's implied. I am he. The reason they add that in 
just blows better so we can understand the text a little bit better. But what, the, what, what Jesus is really talking about is he's identifying himself as I am. The Greek word here or the Greek phrase is ego eimi, I am. The name I am is God's name. And again, getting back to the story of Moses. Remember that story with Moses where long before he went to Pharaoh, he's out working for his father-in-law. He's a shepherd, not a very glamorous life. He's out there taking care of sheep, and he's thinking to himself, well, God can't use me. I killed a guy. And God says, uh, actually, I can use you. This is how God works. We, we disqualify ourselves because of our sin in our lives. We think God can never use us. And so God shows up to Moses in a burning bush. And Moses starts having this conversation with the bush. Now think about this. 80-year-old guy talking to a bush. Kind of weird. And I can imagine Moses is thinking, how am I going to explain to Mrs. Moses that I was talking to a bush today? And as they're having this conversation going back and forth, the bush says, speaks to, to Moses and says, I need you to go to Egypt and rescue my people. And Moses is like, all right, I can't go to Pharaoh and say, hey, I was talking to a bush and it told me that I'm supposed to, you're supposed to let my people go. So who should I tell has sent me on this errand, on this ministry run? And God says, I am, that I am. Tell them, tell Pharaoh, I am sent you, Yahweh. That's who's sending you on this mission in this ministry. I am. I am translated from Hebrew into Greek is ego eimi. So Jesus says, if you do not believe I am, if you do not believe that I am God, you will indeed die in your sins. And you know, the Pharisees, their heads are ready to explode. They are so angry. This claim that Jesus is God. And not just that he's God, but they have to believe in him to be saved, to be rescued from their sins. Verse 25. Who are you? They asked. Jesus replied, just what I've been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say in judgment of you, but he who sent me is trustworthy. And what I have heard from him, I tell the world. They did not understand that he was telling them about his father. So Jesus said, when you have lifted up the son of man, then you will know that I am he. And that I do nothing on my own, but speak just what the father has taught me. The one who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do what pleases him. Even as he spoke, many believed in him. So what Jesus, of course, is doing is telling them how he is going to die, that he is going to be lifted up on a cross. And not just that he's going to be lifted up on a cross, but the moment he's lifted up on a cross, then they will know, verse 28, then you will know that I am. So I, I, I understand you don't get it right now. My teachings are hard. The things I'm saying, my challenge is difficult. But the moment I'm lifted up on a cross, you're going to be like, oh, now we get it. And remember when Jesus was lifted up on a cross? There he is. 
Two thieves, one on each side. The one guy in that moment that Jesus was lifted on a cross is like, you're the Messiah. Jesus, save me. Let me come into your kingdom. And of course, Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise. In that moment when Jesus is on the cross, then they get it. And then there was the Roman centurion. And he's standing there on that day and he's like, surely this man was the son of God. And then after Jesus rose from the grave, handfuls of people, then dozens of people believed in Jesus. Throughout the New Testament, we're told that Jesus appeared to up to 500 people at once. And they're like, oh, this is what's going on. We didn't get it before the cross. We didn't get it before the resurrection. Now we get it. On this day, during this conversation, Jesus is saying, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know. Then you'll understand. Then everything is going to make sense. And then I think about Pentecost. Peter got stood up to, sir, uh, to, to, sir, to deliver a sermon. He preached a great sermon and it says 3,000 people believed in Jesus on that day. Wouldn't you like to be at a church service where 3,000 people are like, now we get it. We believe. I, I just, I love that image of all those people just like, oh, we get it. We believe. And isn't it true that today so many people do not believe in Jesus, right? So many people today are just like, eh, I don't know. I don't know. Someday they're going to believe. It may be too late, but someday they're going to believe. Because the Bible tells us that every knee will bow. Every knee will bow. Someday they'll believe. It may be too late. I love that imagery. So if you've ever felt like misunderstood, like, I just wish my family or my friends or somebody just understood Jesus rose from the grave, that he died for my sins. They will. I just hope it's not too late at that point in time. But he tells us every, someday everybody is going to believe. So I'm going to close uh, this tale of two sinners, the sermon that Jesus preached. Again, I just want to remind us, we're the Pharisees. We're the religious people. We are the people that feel pretty good about our lives and the ways in which we've lived. And we could even spend some time this morning after worship and say, who do we think is the best person in this room? Who do we think is the most spiritual person in this room? Who do we think is the least of the sinners in this room? I mean, wouldn't that be interesting and fun? And I think it would be fun. I mean, we, we could, we could kind of all agree, you know, okay, this is the person that we at Faith Lutheran Church, we think is the best person. And then, so we would nominate uh, someone from our congregation uh, to stand with the best person uh, from the other churches in town, right? And so that's the, that's the next round of the playoffs, right? And so you would have all the people from Bloomington, Normal, McLean County, just the holy church people standing there, and then everybody in the community, we would vote, right? This is who I think the holiest, the best person, the most religious person in our community is. Wouldn't that be great? And of course, we'd send them to state, because that's what you do. 
You just keep going up the rank. And so, you know, you've got every city, every community uh, represented. All the churches have put their best person forward uh, at the state level. Of course, they would gather in Springfield. They would line them up. and We'd all vote. And we would have the most holy, good, spiritual, religious person in the state of Illinois. And they're going to nationals. And we line them up against all the holy... There'll be 51 of them or 50 or how many states there are. We're going to include Puerto Rico, okay? I'm just throwing it out there. They're going to be there. Puerto Rico's there. 51 contestants standing there. The best of the best of the best. The, The church people, the religious people, the good people. They would stand there. We would choose one as a nation, and then we'd go up against all the other nations of the world, right? Because it's not over. There's other good Christians around the world, not just American Christians. And this would go on, you know, hundreds of people, the best of the best from every country. And we would nominate the most um, good, spiritual, holy person, and we would bring that person before God and say, "This, this is the best of the best. You know what God would say? You sinner. You brought a sinner in front of me. This is what Jesus is saying, is that none of us are good. None of us can measure up. We all fall short. We are either an overt sinner or we are a covert sinner. Make no mistake about it. We are all sinners. God does not grade on a curve. God grades only at the cross. And praise God, it's pass-fail. Because some of you have sinned a lot. You just gotta, it's just, just pass-fail. It's just receive what Jesus has done for you and you pass. Or keep trying to impress God. Keep trying to impress people around you. Keep being a religious person. Jesus tells us, you'll just be a Pharisee, someone who looks good on the outside, but someone who is still falling short. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, that you are a God who loves not just the, the woman caught in adultery, but you forgive not just the woman caught in adultery, but you love the Pharisees. And God, you love us so much that you're willing to slap us around and speak truth into our lives because that's what we need. Because most of the time, God, in our own lives, in my own life, I spend so much time with my pride thinking that I'm good or better than others. But at the end of the day, Lord, I'm just a Pharisee among Pharisees. And so, Lord, we thank you. We thank you, God, for the ways in which you speak hard, truthful words to us and the ways in which you love us through this and mold us and shape us and bring new life into our lives. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer.